invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. What a rich time we have had together in this gospel. It seems like every passage that we get to is the best passage there is. And then we get to the next one. Oh, that's the best passage. And then we get to the next one. And, and I think that we can just say this entire book is just so rich. It's so full. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because it speaks of our Savior and of his amazing love for us. Last week we had the privilege of going through verses 12 through 26. This was the presentation of the king. We call it triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. Jesus presented himself as king, but not as the king that they thought he was going to be. The Jews expected him to be a certain way, and we're going to see that again even in these verses. They expected something from him, and in their expectation, Jesus will let them down because he will not accomplish what they're hoping for, which is the destruction of Rome and the bringing in of a physical kingdom at that exact moment. We also saw the prescription to follow the king He presents himself as king, and then he gives the prescription to follow him. Remember, the Greeks come to him and say, Sirs, we wish to see Jesus. And they say, Okay, let's let's go to Jesus and ask him how the the Greeks can come into the the Jewish court here in the temple. Uh, I I don't know how there's going to be a a way that's made. And Jesus doesn't even answer the question as far as, Yes, they can come see me, or No, they cannot. What he says is, The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified is here. It's now. I'm going to die, and when I die, just like a grain falling into the earth, it will bear much fruit. And if you want to follow me, if you want to see me, you need to do the exact same thing. You need to die to self. You need to hate your life, as Jesus says in verse 25. And if you do that, you will keep it to life eternal. You need to serve me. You need to follow me. But if you do those things, you'll be with me where I am, and I will honor you. So we talked about, so often we look at the cost of following Jesus, which is great. You must lose your life. But if we look at the reward, if we look at what is to gain, then the cost seems so minimal. If we see what we have in store for us, it will seem like nothing to let those things go. So we come to verse 27. We're going to study verses 27 through 36 this morning and really what we're going to see is jesus speaking of the theology of his own death before it even happens this is these verses present to us a theology of the cross the cross is exactly why jesus came we just celebrated that at christmas jesus was born to die mark chapter 10 verse 45 jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many he came to die even before the creation of anything in the world revelation 13 Verse 8 says that Jesus was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Before anything was made, uh, the plan was made in the mind of God, in the triune Godhead, that what would happen is man would be created, man would fall, and they would need a Savior, and Jesus would be that Savior. He was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. The cross is the central theme of the entire scriptures. Uh, As far back as the Old Testament with the need for sacrifices, that's picturing what Jesus was going to do as the lamb who is going to be slain. The cross in the New Testament obviously is the reality of those pictures in the Old Testament. The cross is the centrality of heaven. This is what we will be worshiping Jesus for and praising him for in heaven. Everything either moves towards the cross or flows from the cross. The cross is central to the Bible and the cross is also central to our lives. The cross is central to everything that we do. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all I want to know. 
Because everything that you need to know about life flows from the truth of the cross. All of the epistles have commands, and all of those commands flow from the cross. If Jesus ransomed us with his own life, how could we not live for him? How could we not give everything that we have? He gave everything for us and died for us. Then all of the commands are merely implications of how we should live in light of the cross. Revelation chapter 5 is the throne room of heaven, and in the throne room, all of the living uh, creatures and the, the, the elders and, and the angels are, are crying out in praise, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. So the cross is central in the Old Testament, central in the New Testament, central in the Bible, central in our lives, central in heaven for all of eternity. Cross is everything for a believer. The cross is everything. So as we read these words... As Jesus explains some accomplishments that will happen at the cross, we are standing on holy ground. We are entering the Holy of Holies, as it were, to see yet again our Savior's great love for us demonstrated at the cross and all of the accomplishments that the cross would bring. So let's read these words very carefully and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Verse 27, Jesus said, Now my soul has become troubled But what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. And the crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overcome you, overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. But while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and he hid himself from them. Father, these words are so rich and we need your grace we need your grace to open our eyes to see exactly what jesus is experiencing in these verses by your grace we know of the cross by your grace and your kindness we have been taught and instructed about the cross but i pray this morning that we would as martin luther said Feel as if Jesus died just yesterday. And that these words were spoken just a few days before that. Awaken affections for your son. I pray in this room for those that are currently walking in darkness. By your grace, the light is going to be shown to them. And I pray that they would believe in the light. Before the time comes that the light moves away. And they remain in darkness forever. 
And God, for those who are sons of light, daughters of light, may we see what the the power, the, the accomplishments of the cross, may we see that they pointed to glorify the Father in everything that Jesus did. May we be encouraged, challenged, and instructed by your grace through your spirit. We pray in your name. Amen. So these words, probably spoken on Monday or Tuesday of the Passion Week, we talked about uh, that last week, triumphal entries on Sunday, Jesus cleanses the temple on Monday, takes over the temple, and either this is happening Monday after cleansing the temple, or it's happening on Tuesday after taking over the temple again and teaching in the temple. So these words just flow right after verse 26. There is no break. Jesus is discussing the fact that he is going to have to die in order for the Greeks to be able to see him. Clearly, he's going to have to die. And as he starts talking about his death, he moves into verse 27 to say that he's troubled. So Jesus is in complete control here. He knows exactly when he's going to die. He knows exactly how he's going to die. Nobody takes his life from him. He lays his life down. And as he contemplates, this is what I believe is happening in these verses. He tells his disciples, I must die in order to reap the harvest that the Father has given to me to reap. And as he contemplates his own death, his heart becomes troubled. And as he becomes troubled in his soul, he preaches truth to himself. To say, I know what I'm about to experience is horrific, but it will bring about accomplishments that are going to be far more glorious and far more amazing and far more intense than anything I will experience at the cross. So I am troubled at the prospect of going to the cross, but he preaches truth to himself to combat the temptation of not going to the cross in order to go and to glorify his father in his perfect obedience. So he says in verse 27, now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. His soul is troubled. The word troubled can be translated distressed or shaken or stirred up, anguished, agitated, terrified, horrified. But it's interesting to note that this is not some cloud of dread that's just fallen over Jesus. Like he's happy, he's having a great day, and all of a sudden he thinks about the cross and and becomes troubled. The tense that this word is in connotes a continuous state. My soul, we could translate it this way, my soul is in constant turmoil. Jesus' soul had been in constant turmoil ever since he was able to fully understand what he was on earth to do. Couldn't understand that as a baby. Obviously, he's a baby. He needs to learn. He needs to grow. We would figure by about age eight, based on what we have in the Bible, that maybe at that point he knew his mission. That he was sent by the Father to die for the sins of many. He's going to do that and become that ransom for many. And just just picture, put yourself in his shoes for just one second and picture how troubling of a life that would have been. To know your ultimate end is crucifixion. We know that the Romans crucified many people all the time. And so Jesus probably walked by as a Young boy, as a teenager, as a young adult, he probably walked by people nailed to crosses, screaming out in agony. That's why he says, my soul has been in constant turmoil. This isn't just a one-time thing. I'm thinking about the cross now, but once I stop thinking about the cross, I'll be fine. His soul has been in turmoil this entire time. As Isaiah says, he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. This was hanging over his soul for a very, very long time. Think about how troubled you get when you have an appointment with a dentist. (laughs) 
I'm troubled knowing, oh, they're going to drill into my mouth. This is going to be very bad. I'm not excited about this. You're troubled for a couple weeks, and then that date's done, and you move on. Jesus was troubled in his soul for years. Why is he troubled? He says, Father, save me from this hour. It's the hour, this hour that is troubling him. But what is this hour? We know that this hour is the hour of his death, of his resurrection, of his glorification into heaven, his ascension into heaven. We know that that's what this hour is. So he's speaking of his death. The question is, how can he be troubled by looking at his death? If it's merely physical, how can he be troubled merely by looking at the physical aspect of his death? Now, crucifixion is an absolutely terrible way to die. But his own followers were not troubled at their own martyrdom. So how is Jesus here troubled at his death? Is it the physical? We've discussed this before on some Good Fridays together. I believe that this is not the anguish of anticipating the physical suffering that he's going to go through. I don't think he has the physical in mind at all. I don't think that the physical matters to Jesus. I think what Jesus is troubled by is the fact that he is going to experience the full, furious, righteous wrath of God on the cross on behalf of sinners like you and like me. And that makes sense. God should be troubled at the prospect of bearing sin. God should be troubled at being a sin bearer. He's holy. How can he bear sin? He should be troubled by that. He should be troubled by the prospect of being punished for sin since he never sinned in his entire life. But we know the words of John Flavel that God, in John's imagination, um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus cries out to the Father and says, is there any other way? Is there any other way? John Flavel says it's, it's as if the Father says, if I am to spare them, I cannot spare you. And if I spare you, I cannot spare them. Which will it be? Which will it be? Jesus is troubled by the prospect of being punished as if he had sinned and lived our sinful lives. The wrath of God is going to be poured out on him. John, the gospel writer, does not include Jesus' prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. He moves to the Garden of Gethsemane in a few chapters from now, but he just speaks of what happens in the Garden with the arrest, the betrayal and the arrest. So this is really... John's mentioning of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. A wrestle with the fact that Jesus doesn't want to do this. Is there another way? But even as those words go off of his lips, my soul is troubled, what shall I say? My soul is troubled, and it's troubled by the prospect of being the sin bearer and the wrath bearer. But what am I going to say? Save me from this hour, Father? No, I would never say that because I came for this hour. This is the purpose For which I was born. So I would never say that. He's troubled, but he says, I would never even go so far as asking that this hour would be gone. And then it's as if he's going to rehearse the accomplishments that are going to be brought out of this hour taking place, as horrific as it will be. This is crucial for us. Just as a side note, Jesus is wrestling here with the temptation. Jesus is wrestling with the temptation of, I can disobey my father and not do what he sent me to do, and I won't have to go through with bearing his furious, righteous wrath on behalf of sinners. I can do that. If I do that, that would be disobedient. 
And so he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not even going to ask it. This is so crucial for us. Conflict with sin is not sin. Conflict with sin, wrestling with temptation, is not sin. That's why we're on holy ground here, because we see Jesus wrestling with sin. He's wrestling with the temptation. But obviously, he's holy. This is not sin for him to wrestle. And this is key for our lives as believers. As we walk with Jesus, your authenticity, your genuineness as a Christian is as much made manifest by the conflict that you have in your life as by your joy and your peace. Typically, we, we, we tend to think Christians just exude peace and joy and everything's happy in their lives. And then you look and you go, that's not happening to me. I'm in conflict every day. I wake up and I'm doing the thing I don't want to be doing. I'm not doing the thing I want to be doing. I'm fighting. There's a war going on. And all these other people around me just have peace. I must not be saved. No, that conflict is as much a manifestation of authentic faith in your life that you're warring against that sin. You're fighting against it, as is peace and joy. So we see Jesus' struggle here. But he says, it's for this purpose that I came. End of verse 27. It's for this purpose that I came, for this hour. So, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. That prayer, that is... We could live a thousand lives and never get to the bottom of how amazing that prayer is. Glorify your name. What Jesus is saying is, let me die. I'm going to go die. The only way that Jesus is going to be able to glorify God's name, the Father's name, is by being obedient under the point of death, even death on a cross. So as he says, Father, glorify your name, he's praying for his own death. He's praying for his own death. And as he prays that, The father speaks, middle of verse 28. A voice came out of heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. We only have three times in the life of Jesus that are documented for us when the father breaks into human history and speaks. First at the baptism, this is my beloved son. Second at the transfiguration, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That part needs to be added because Peter was speaking. Hey, we should do this. No, 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 stop, Peter. Listen to him. This is God, very God. Listen to him. And then here. Three times that the Father speaks into human history. And here he says, I have both glorified it. I have glorified it. You have brought me glory through your life. Even just recently, through the resurrection of Lazarus, you have brought me immense glory. But it's not going to stop. Your prayer is that my name would be glorified. I'm going to glorify it. And I'm going to glorify it through your death. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus prays, Father, make your name great in my dying and in my rising. And the Father says, I will. Jesus says, make your name great. And the Father says, I did it by raising Lazarus, and I'm going to do it by raising you. Make your name great, Father. This is crucial for us to know as well, because the cross is not the enemy of Jesus being glorified. Jesus is not glorified despite the cross, but because of the cross. And in this, the Father is glorified. By the way, when Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, and the Father says, I will glorify my name, I have and I will, this is why we speak at this church of living to glorify God above all things. We want to glorify him and treasure his glory. We love his glory. The reason why we love God's glory is because God loves his glory. God loves his glory. We are passionate about God's glory because God is passionate about his glory. And so we savor it. 
John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. We are beholding his glory even now, and we're savoring it together. If you want your own glory, that's all you'll get. The praise of man, your own glory, God's not going to glorify you. But if you will bow the knee and glorify the Father, you will get two things. You will glorify the Father. He will get glory. And if you go back to verse 26, you'll get honor from God himself. So deny yourself, give glory to him, don't take any for yourself, and one day he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, and honor you. He will do that. So God the Father speaks. Verse 29, the crowd of people who stood by heard it. And they were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying that an angel had spoken to him. Did they understand what was said? Did they hear the Father's words? I tend to think that they heard some words because Jesus is going to say what was spoken was not for my sake. It was for your sake. So I tend to believe that my guess is they heard something that made some sort of sense. Jesus didn't need the voice from heaven. He had already made up his mind to obey the Father. Jesus knew this, so this isn't news for him. It's for those around him, maybe specifically even his disciples. Some say it's thundered. I wonder what the voice of God sounds like when he speaks into human history. Apparently it's loud and booming because they say it's thundered. Apparently it's heavenly because somebody says it's an angel, an angel, some spiritual being has spoken. They know it came from heaven, but they're missing the entire point of what they've heard. They're missing the entire point. And John Calvin is so helpful here. He says this. It was a monstrous thing that the multitude was obtuse to so plain a miracle. Some were deaf and caught what God had pronounced distinctly as a confused sound. It's just thunder. Others were less dull, but yet detracted greatly from the majesty of the divine voice by pretending that its author was an angel. Well, it was some heavenly being, but it wasn't God. It's just an angel. But the same thing is common today, John Calvin says. God speaks plainly enough in the gospel in which there is also displayed a power and energy of the Holy Spirit, which should shake heaven and earth. But many are as cold towards the teaching as if it came only from a mortal man. And others think God's word to be a a barbarous stammering. As if it were nothing but thunder. What should the crowd have said? They should have said, someone in heaven is speaking. If they didn't hear the words audibly, they should have said, Some, something is speaking in heaven as a sign to point us that we should believe in this man. But instead they're just, oh wow, thunder. Oh wow, an angel. Oh, that's cool. Let's go home. They don't get the point of what has been said. Jesus answers, verse 30, this voice is not come for my sake, but for your sakes. And then he says this, verse 31 and 32. This is really the outline of the message. There's three main points here. Everything leading up to this has been introduction. And I believe that what Jesus is doing, again, I believe that Jesus has just told his disciples, in order for the Greeks to see me, in order for anybody to be in heaven, I need to die. And as he contemplates that death, he's troubled. And he says, I will not ask for that hour to pass me by. I will go to that hour. Not that it would have been sin for him to ask for that hour to pass him by. Father, is there another way? We know he's going to do that. He says, I will obey the Father. I'm not even going to ask. And so he starts preaching. What's going to be accomplished when I do go to the cross? This is a beautiful picture of how truth should infuse our minds, change our will, And make us live different lives. 
This is a beautiful picture. He's, he's at a crossroads. I can either go this way of obeying God, and that's going to be hard. I can go this way and disobey and not do what God's asking me to do. But if I obey, this is what's going to happen. There's glory that's waiting for me. For the joy set before me, I'm going to go. So he's going to walk through. He's going to walk through three accomplishments, three effects that will happen at the cross. Many, a myriad of things happen at the cross. But he's just going to name three for us. And these three are going to be sufficient for him to say, I'm good. I'm going to the cross. These three accomplishments of the cross will bring God glory says, Father, glorify yourself. And he's going to say, these are the ways in which God will be given glory as I go to the cross. Number one, verse 31, he says this. Now judgment is upon this world. The first accomplishment that Jesus says that the cross will bring about and bring God glory is that the world will be judged. The world will be judged. He says, now. We know, John 5 tells us that the world will be judged at the end of time as well. But he says, now. In this moment, at the hour of the cross, judgment is going to be brought into the world. And this will bring God glory. Judgment will bring God glory. What's happening? What is this judgment? Jesus is the light of the world. We've studied this a couple times already in the Gospel of John, but Jesus comes to bring a division. He comes to say, you you need to make a choice. Will you believe in me, accept me, receive me, or will you reject me? Now, there's been massive rejection. John chapter 6, an enormous chapter of massive rejection. But it's never come to the place where it's going to come when Jesus goes to the cross. And when he goes to the cross, when he is killed at the cross, that is out and out final rejection by the people that say, we don't want him here. We want him dead. They will kill him instead of embracing the light to testify that they love the light and that their deeds have been brought about by God. They will reject the light, kill him and be judged according to it. John chapter 5, verse 24 through 27. We don't have time to turn there, but just write that down. John chapter 5. Verses 24 through 27. Jesus says judgment is going to be happening through him. God the Father has given judgment to the Son. And the Son is going to judge in the future, but also now. Because he says this in verse 24. If you believe in me, then you don't come into judgment now, but you've passed out of death into life. But if you reject me, you will come into judgment now and again later. The judgment is happening now. The entire system of sinful mankind is being judged. The cross is going to condemn and judge the world. So Jesus says, believe me and enter into judgment-free eternity. Don't believe me and you'll be judged even now. You will be judged. This is a reversal, by the way, of what it looks like is happening. I think Jesus is preaching a very challenging truth to himself to say, it's going to look like I'm going to be judged by sinful man. And they're going to execute me. They're going to hand down a sentence and judge me. But as they're judging me, I will be judging them. It's not what, what it looks like is happening is not actually happening. You think that you are judging me, sinful mankind. I'm actually judging you in that exact moment. The whole Christ-rejecting world is going to be judged by the cross of Christ. By the way, our sin is going to be judged by, by the cross of Christ as well. This also brings a promise of hope for us that our sin is going to be judged in that moment at the cross. That leads to number two. So number one, though it looks like I'm going to be judged by the world, I'm actually going to judge the world. Number two, middle of verse 31, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So effect number two of the cross is that Satan is going to be cast out. 
Satan hates what's about to happen. He knows that in the sinful world judging Jesus, Jesus is judging sinful world and conquering sin and death. He hates what's about to happen, so he's going to try and make these final hours so horrifying that he can make Jesus disobey. Jesus is going to say, no, I'm going to obey. And in Jesus' obedience, he's going to cast Satan out. He's going to disarm him or dethrone him. My question is, in what sense is Satan cast out? I'm going to cast out. Where is he such that he's being removed? Could be a figurative sense that he's sitting on some form of a throne and he's cast out of that throne. He's uh, leveled from that throne and he's dethroned. Could be that. We know that it isn't that he's cast into hell. Hell was already created for Satan and his angels, but Satan was allowed to be released from hell and to have free reign over this world. First Peter chapter 5, Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking who he can devour. Because that's the truth, Ephesians chapter 6, we need to put on the full armor of God to stand against him. So he's still very much alive. What is Jesus saying here? I think maybe it's a metaphor for being cast out the courtroom of heaven. He's being cast out of the place where he loves to be. Remember, what's his name? He's the accuser of the brethren. He loves to accuse you and me before God. And in this decisive moment at the cross, Satan is going to be cast out of that throne room. There's no more courtroom decision for Satan to be a part of. Once and for all, paid in full, it's done. At the cross... The accuser is silenced. What did he have against us? He had our sin. He had our sin. He uses the Bible against God himself and says, the wages of sin is death given to me. And Jesus says, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. I have died for their soul. Their sin is no more. They are perfectly righteous because of my son's life and his death and his resurrection. Now, Satan can totally rough up this world. He can absolutely do a lot of damage He is wicked. He is evil. He is very powerful. He's more powerful than we could possibly comprehend. But we don't have to fear him because all he can do to us is kill us. And in killing us, he makes our day because he sends us straight to heaven. That's where we want to be anyway. That's where we want to be. So Satan is completely finished. He has no weapon against us. He is defanged at the cross. And he has no weapon that can stand against us. Satan has been cast out of his seat as accuser, and Jesus has taken the seat as defender of his children, the silencer of the accuser. He can rough up this world, but in heaven before the throne, he's been rendered completely silent. So, this also is a reversal of what looks like is happening. At the cross, it looks like all of Satan's fury is being thrown at Jesus, and at the cross, Satan is being destroyed. At the cross, Satan is being undone. So Jesus is reminding himself of these truths out loud. He's saying that though it looks like he's going to be losing, in fact, he's going to be in full control. He's going to conquer even though it looks like he will be losing. The world thinks that they win by killing Christ, but Christ actually won. Satan thinks he wins by killing Jesus, but Jesus actually wins. So the world is judged. Satan is cast out. Number three, Jesus says... Amazing words, verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. The first two verses are small. The first two points are small and they're obvious. World is judged, Satan is cast out. 
But we need to do a little bit more work here. So I'm going to give you the title. It's a little bit longer for point number three, and then I'll try and defend it by what I believe John is saying. Number three, Jesus secures salvation. Jesus secures salvation for his sheep from all people groups. We've got the world is judged, Satan is cast out, and number three, Jesus secures salvation for his sheep from all people groups. Remember, this is the accomplishment. These are the effects of what will happen at the cross. And at the cross, I think Jesus is saying the world's going to be judged, the sinful system's going to be judged, Satan's going to be cast out, and security will be brought to my sheep from all over the world. He says, when I'm lifted up. When I'm lifted up. If I am lifted up, it's when. When I'm lifted up from the earth, and that, in verse 33, indicates the kind of death by which he's going to die. Even the people around him know he's speaking of being lifted up on a cross and being killed. So it's not lifted up in praise or worship through song or things like that. It's when I die, I will draw all men to myself. So when I die, something amazing is going to happen. Now, literally in the Greek, it just says, I will draw all to myself. So people, uh, I think in the ESV it's people, men in the NASB, um, that's supplied to try and bring clarification. All what? But you know there's clarification needed there because all the Greek says is, when I die, I will draw all to myself. That's all Jesus is saying. I will draw all to myself. So the question is, what does that mean? Who's the all? What's happening here? Now, we know clearly that Jesus is not saying, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people for salvation. I will save all people. We know that. Not only from the rest of Bible doctrine, but even from just a verse earlier. The world's being judged. There are people that will not be saved. So I'm not drawing all people for salvation. There are people that are not going to be saved. So when Jesus says, I'm going to draw all when I'm killed... What is he saying? I don't think that he's saying I'm going to draw all people. Think about the people that he's talking about who are going to be judged. They're they're the people rejecting Jesus at the cross. When Jesus is being raised up on a cross, does he, in these words, does he mean that he will draw those who just nailed him to a cross to himself? I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying they're, they're going to be judged. So what is he saying? really leaves us only with two options. Option number one. Either I will draw all kinds of people, all sorts of different people from all over the earth, or I will draw all of my people, all of the people that I have in my mind that I will save. I think it's a combination of both. I don't think we have to make a decision there. Now, we interpret the Bible grammatically, contextually. Everybody in my class would be able to tell you four ways that we interpret the Bible, grammatically, contextually, historically, and literally. So we need to look at grammar and we need to look at context to help us understand the meaning of I will draw all to myself. When I die, I will draw all. First, let's start with grammar. Grammar, the word draw, the word draw, it's the exact same word that's used by John, by Jesus in John's gospel in chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who draws him does that. Nobody can come to me unless the father who sent me draws that person. And he says, I'll raise him up on the last day. So you cannot get to Jesus unless the Father draws you. So same word that's used there, drawing. The drawing is effective. It isn't making possible, it's decisive. You will be drawn and you will be raised up on the last day. Those whom the Father draws, they're saved, they're secure, and they are um, secure until the last day when Jesus raises them from the dead. I think that if Jesus wanted to say, when I die, I will make salvation 
the gospel call as an option for all men, which he did. He absolutely makes the gospel a call to all men every single place in the entire world and all of human history. I think he would have said, when I am lifted up, I will present myself to the world as an offering of salvation. And that's exactly what Jesus did at the cross, but he doesn't say that here. Here he says, when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all to myself. So yes, he's going to present himself as a free gift to every single creature, but some will be judged and some will be drawn. So he uses the word draw. When the father draws, the sheep come. The drawing overcomes the opposition. When he draws, you come. It isn't a drawing that's half come, half don't. It's not what Jesus is saying here. The word draw that John uses here, that Jesus is speaking, is used five times in the Gospel of John. Twice to refer to God drawing people to himself, and three times to refer to drawing, uh, drawing fish from a net, from a lake, drawing them in. So five times this word is used. And it's clearly, in a theological sense, used to show us that people do not come to Christ on their own initiative. They can't. We are completely sinful, and we don't like God. We hate God, and so God needs to work in our hearts to draw us to himself. John 6, 65, No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So granted, drawn. What about the word all? John chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives to me will come. All that the Father gives to me will come. So all that the Father draws, he gives to me. And all that the Father gives to me will come to me. So uh, another use in John, John chapter 17, verse 2, Jesus says, The Son gives eternal life to all that you have given to him. He gives eternal life to everyone that you've given to him. The Father draws, the Son gives eternal life, and secures them. So, just grammatically speaking, when Jesus says, I will draw all to myself, I believe Jesus is saying, my death is the means by which the Father draws. When I die, I told you the Father is going to draw people, and he's going to draw people through my death. And when I die, people will be drawn. When I die, the Father purchases souls of his sheep. A ransom is paid, right? A ransom is paid for many. I've come to be a ransom for many, and the many will be saved at the cross. The opposition against Jesus is to overcome. It's overcome. The opposition against Jesus is overcome by the death of Jesus, and all that I buy at Calvary will come. I think that's what he's saying. Remember, these truths are encouraging truths. These truths are encouragement to Jesus' soul. When I die, sin will be destroyed. It will be judged. When I die, Jesus, Satan will have no more uh, proof against me to accuse uh, me before Jesus. When I die, these things are sure to happen. I, I don't think then he would say, and when I die, maybe some people will believe. That wouldn't be an encouragement to my heart. What he's saying is when I die, people will be saved. It's happening when I die. Let's check out contextually. Contextually. We looked at grammatically. Let's check out contextually. John chapter 10, verse 16. Context of John. Jesus says, I lay my life down for the sheep. Or we could say, I am lifted up for the sheep. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also. I will bring them. I will gather them. It will happen. So I have sheep that I will die to save. And some of those sheep are not even of this fold. They're, they're Gentiles. They're not of the fold of, of Israel. They're Gentiles that are going to be brought in. So, using the immediate context of John's gospel, when the Greeks come and they say, can we see Jesus? 
I believe the all here in verse 32 is the answer to that request. Yes, I'm going to bring all kinds. I'm going to save my sheep from all kinds of people group and draw them in here and now. So I believe Jesus is saying my death is the means by which the father will draw. When I die, the father has purchased the souls of his sheep. The ransom is paid for the many. The opposition against Jesus will be overcome by the death of Jesus. And all that I buy at Calvary will come from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group, Jew and Gentile alike. That's why I said it the way I said it. Point number three is Jesus, when he dies, secures salvation for his sheep from all kinds of people groups. That's what I think he's saying. So the world thinks they're judging him. He's judging them. Satan thinks that he's defeating Jesus. Jesus is conquering Satan. And at the cross, it looked like all who were following him would be lost when he died. We have no more leader. We have no more hope. But instead, at the cross, that was the moment of their security. All that were following Jesus were secured in that moment. And all that will follow him, their faith was purchased at that moment. His anguish becomes anticipation. Jesus, as he's troubled, his troubled soul turns into triumph because he can see the glory and joy before him. He's going to endure the cross. So, verse 33, John tells us he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was going to die. The crowd knew this. The crowd knew that lifting up meant being killed on a cross. In fact, in a Jewish mindset, if you wanted to say somebody was going to be killed, you would normally say either lifting up or cast down or thrown down because they were going to be stoned to death. We see that with Stephen, that he's going to be thrown down, cast down. He died. So the crowds knew exactly what Jesus was saying. I'm going to die by crucifixion. And so they ask a question. Verse 34, we've heard out of the law. That law doesn't just mean Torah. It means the entire Hebrew Bible. We've heard out of the law that Christ is to remain forever. The Messiah is to remain forever. He's not going to die. So how can you say the Son of Man is going to die? How can you say he's going to be lifted up and die by crucifixion? Son of Man, Messianic title used in Daniel chapter 7. So they get the picture. You claim to be Messiah. You're also claiming you're going to die on the cross. How does that work? Messiah doesn't die. Now, before we, we, we often give these disciples and these followers a terrible rap. Like, how could you not see in the Bible that it clearly said he was going to die? Let, let's, let's be optimistic and nice to them for, for once here. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 35, and Psalm 72, verse 17, all speak that the Messiah and his kingdom and his reign will endure forever. We believe those verses. And they did too. They interpreted those verses to say, when Messiah comes, he's never going to die, and his kingdom is going to be established forever here and now. So let's not give them a bad rap right away. They definitely missed some verses, like Isaiah 53, Zechariah 13, and Psalm 22. They definitely missed some passages. But they were zeroing in on the Bible. They loved the Bible, and they say, the Bible says, you're not supposed to die. You're not supposed to die. And they ask, who is the Son of Man? Who are you? What is happening And Jesus says this, verse 35. And I just, before I read these, I want to say, if these verses thus far have not been personal to you, they become personal now. If for some reason these verses have not been personal to you, they become personal now. Because Jesus says this, For a little while longer the light's among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. The question is, 
Do you believe me? They say, who is this son of man? He says, you know who I am. I am the light of the world. I am the light who is coming to the world to give life. But do you believe that? Do you believe me? Even just going back to the three effects of the cross, the three accomplishments that happened at the cross. Does your heart this morning say, I believe that sin was judged at the cross. Sin is serious enough that it needs to be paid for. It needs to be punished by death. And I believe that Jesus died the death in my place. Do you believe that Satan has no claim on you? Does your heart cry out in belief that Satan has no claim over you because of what Jesus did at the cross? Does your heart say, I believe Jesus secured me and purchased me when he died. I believe he overcame the opposition that I had against him, that while I was still a sinner, he died for me to purchase me and to call me his own. If you believe those things, he says, follow the light. And you will not only see the light of Christ, but the light of Christ will be a part of you such that you will become the light. Sons of light. That's just a Hebrew idiom. Sometimes sons means physical descendant, but sometimes it also means equal to. You're not a physical descendant of Jesus. You are equal to the light that Jesus has. You'll be walking in everlasting light and be with him forever. This idea of light goes back all the way to John 9, 4, where Jesus says a little while longer and the light goes away. It's, it's noon right now, but darkness is coming. You need to walk while you have the light. John 11, verse 10, he says the exact same thing. Even back at John chapter 1, the light, the life was the light of men. He's the light that came into the world. In the prologue of the book in chapter 1, the word is the light. And he provides illumination for all. He provides a possibility for all. He provides a call for all. Come, whosoever would believe can believe. Come and follow me. And he secures their salvation at the cross that those who would believe would be secured. So Jesus says to them very clearly, avail yourselves to the light now. It's not going to be here forever. Paul, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 and Ephesians 5, 8, he calls believers children of light. He picks up on this message. We've been brought from darkness into light, the kingdom, the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of his beloved son, into marvelous light. So Jesus asks them, and I believe he asks us this morning, do you believe that what Jesus said would happen at the cross happened at the cross? Do you believe that Jesus is the light that has come into the world? You will not have forever to make that decision. And Jesus emphatically, when he says, while you have the light, believe in him, because you're not going to have him forever. He emphatically, at the end of that verse, verse, middle of verse 36, these things Jesus spoke, and then he went away and he hid himself. He hides from them. You have the light now, but it's leaving. Believe now. Or as the New Testament would tell us, now is the day of salvation. Now is the pointed hour. Believe now. So, how do we tie all these things together? Just two points. Number one, you have one choice to make and you have two options. Light or darkness. Do you believe Jesus? Will you follow him? Or do you believe that you can find your own way? You can live the way you want to live. Today, a decision has to be made Who will you follow? How will you follow? But point number two in conclusion. So Jesus says these words on Monday or Tuesday of the Passion Week. He says, I don't want to have to go through this hour. This hour is going to be horrific. 
but what am I going to say? Am I going to even ask the Father to take this out? Of course not. I'm not even going to ask that. And then we know just a couple days later, he's going to ask that question. Asking is not sin. He's going to be so overcome with grief and sorrow. He's not going to be able to stand, Mark chapter 14. He will fall down under the weight of what he's about to experience on the cross, the wrath of God. Every time I read that account of the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus falls down and he's weeping in agony over what he's about to experience, I always just wish I could pause time, jump into the Bible, run into the Garden of Gethsemane, and pick my Savior up and hug him and say, I am so sorry, because what you are feeling right now, I should have felt. You are going through what you're going through because of me. You have done nothing wrong, and you're paying my price. On Tuesday, on Monday and Tuesday of the Passion Week, he says, there's no way I could ever even ask for this hour to pass. Yet on Thursday night, he's going to pray three times. Is there any way this hour can pass? Is there any way? So, brothers and sisters, Jesus' soul was troubled so that your soul can rest. Jesus' soul was in anguish so that your soul can be filled with peace. God is for you. He is never against you. If you are in Christ, the price of our peace was his trouble. So, will you follow him? Do you believe him? Will you walk in light? And do you see what had to happen in order for you to be able to walk in the light? The price that was paid for you and for me was paid by the the Lamb of God, the precious Lamb of God. If we truly see this, if we truly understand what's happening in these verses, then we cannot ever remain the same. Father, I thank you so much for these amazing words and the effects of the cross that we see so clearly here. We want to stare at the cross. We don't ever want to get over the cross. Heaven is cross-centered. We should be cross-centered as well. And we should constantly be meditating on the effects. These are only three that Jesus states here, and these three accomplishments are enough to get him to Thursday where he's going to ask, is there any other way? And his obedience um, for you and towards you and his love for you and his love for us will compel him to go to the cross, the joy that is set before him. But God, I pray that we'd meditate on all of those aspects of what the cross brought us, and ultimately that we would know the cross, the cross purchased for us peace with God. The just for the unjust, so that you could bring us to God in a perfect, reconciled relationship. May we have peace this morning that passes all understanding because we know the love that Jesus has for us. May we have security and rest that even on our worst days, your hand still holds us so tightly and will never let us go. You purchased that peace for us at Calvary. We have no accuser anymore. Oh, Satan tries. And when he tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward we look and see Jesus who made an end to all of our sin. May we meditate on the cross now and in so doing, May we glorify the Father. That's exactly what Jesus prayed for. Father, glorify yourself 
May Jesus' cross so many years ago bring glory to the Father now.